Our passage this morning is printed for you in your bulletins. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 9. But I want to begin, I want to begin this morning with uh, a very simple question for all of us. I want to know, do you want to be great? Don't you want to be great? Don't pretend. No false modesty. Just think about it and be honest with yourself. Do you want to be great? I, I want to be great. I want to be a great husband. I want to be a great father. I want to be a a great pastor. And I want to be a great friend. And I think God likes that. He likes us wanting to be great as long as you have the same definition of greatness as He does. It's okay to want to be great as long as your definition of greatness is the same as God's definition of greatness. The good news is this morning, Jesus helps us understand what it means to be great. And we're going to read about it even in our passage now. So let's let's read together. If you would follow along with me, let's read together Mark chapter 9. 20 verses or so, give or take one or two, beginning in verse 30. The they here is Jesus and the disciples, all right? So let's attend to this uh, passage in the Gospel of Mark. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he, being Jesus, he didn't want anybody to know, for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He is killed, after three days He will rise. But they, meaning the disciples, did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask Him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when He was in the house, Jesus asked them, What were you discussing on the way? They kept silent, for on the way they'd argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child, he put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Then John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. 
Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with, than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. It's God's Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there is much in this passage that you have given to us to help us understand what it means to be great. Father, I pray that um, you would bear the truth of your word down into our hearts, that we would better understand what it is you'd have us know, so that we could live life in the kingdom in the way you want us to live. I pray your blessings now, even as we look to you, for it's in Christ's name, amen. As Matt said, we are in the middle of our series on the kingdom of God. We've already hit the point where we're talking about what does it mean to live in the kingdom. And just as a way of review, let me remind you a little bit about about what we're talking about with the kingdom of God, because we throw that, that phrase around a lot, and we need to make sure that we understand what we're talking about. Um, one of the definitions that we've used, which gets the main idea uh, of all the sermons over the course of the summer, is when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about God's redemptive rule or reign actively present in the lives of His people and the world. So objectively, what that means is God has truly begun His kingdom in a new way with the coming of Christ. It's a historical reality, and He is at work restoring a people and the world to the way it's supposed to be. That's the objective fact of the matter. Subjectively, we experience the rule or reign of Christ in our lives by the power of the Spirit, and we live it out day to day. The things that we say, the the things that we think, the things that we do, the way that we work, the way that we play. So it's an objective fact, and it's subjectively experienced in the world through the power of the Holy Spirit as it's worked out in our lives. This morning... We're going to talk about what it means to be great in the kingdom, to live greatly in God's kingdom. It's radically different from the world's understanding of what it means to be great. This morning we're going to talk about three ideas. We're going to talk about receiving greatness. We're going to talk about the requirements of greatness. And then lastly, the results of greatness. The kingdom is received, or greatness is received. And then once it's received, then you are going to want to do all sorts of great things the way God defines it. There are requirements to being made great. And there are results for us and for the world 
because of what God has done. So let's look at these three big ideas. First of all, greatness is not achieved, but greatness is something that is received. It's not achieved, it is received. In fact, we think it is what we do that makes us great, don't we? And in one sense, that is true, but it's not primary. Greatness, according to God, is derivative. Greatness, according to God, is something that comes from the ultimate, truly great one, and it's from outside in. It's not inside out, it's outside in. And the reason this is important to understand at the very beginning is because the whole passage that we read this morning, it's all governed by this idea of what Jesus explains concerning his life. Right? The first part, the first few verses, all that we read is governed by the first part of what Jesus tells his disciples, and all he tells them is that he's going to die and rise again. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Realize this is not the first time the disciples have heard this, and it's not the last time the disciples will hear it. Actually, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus already had told them, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected by men, and I'm going to die. And if if you remember anything about the first time Jesus said that, you'll remember that that's when Peter comes up to Jesus, and Peter rebukes Jesus. By the way, that's never a good idea. Because the first thing that Jesus says back to Peter is, Get behind me, Satan. And then he says to Peter, You have the things of man in mind, not the things of God. And then after our passage, Jesus again tells his disciples, speaking more about the humiliation of the cross, he still tells them that he's going to die. And that's when John and James come up to him and they say, Jesus, they say, teacher, we want you to do whatever it is that we ask of you. Again, that's not a really good idea. They want to sit next to Jesus as he actively reigns in the future kingdom. The other disciples are upset with James and John because they want to sit next to Jesus. You see, in our passage, Jesus says pretty much the same thing. And you know what the disciples talk about after Jesus says this? They talk about who's going to be greatest. There's a pattern here, right? You see the pattern? They don't understand what it means to be great. So in their travels, after Jesus teaches them on how he's going to have to die for them and be raised again, his best human friends, the one he's closest to, they don't talk about how sad that's going to be. They don't talk about how hard that must be. They don't even try to figure it out. Rather, in some form or fashion, they talk about who's going to be great. They didn't get it. And these are the good guys. Right? So Jesus, in our passage, he calls his disciples over. He sits down. And he says, let me tell you about greatness. And this is what he says. If anyone would like to be first, he must be last and servant of all. 
If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Being first or being great means that you have to be last. And if you're going to be last, you're going to have to serve everybody else. It's a complete reversal of what they understand greatness is all about. In other words, to be great in God's kingdom, our entire idea of life, our entire understanding of what it means to live in community with other people, it has to be turned upside down. Greatness comes from the outside. It has to be received. Because whether you believe it or not, you can't get greatness on your own. And if you try, it will destroy you and all your relationships. And the reason that I can say that is Jesus, right after he talks about his death on the cross, right after he talks about being last and servant of all, if you're going to be great, he gives us three living illustrations or, or, or practical ideas to, to understand what he means. He, he gives us a picture of what it means to receive a child. He gives us an illustration of what it means to receive a stranger. And he gives us a picture of how we are to accept a cup of water. So let me explain all these three very quickly. A child, a stranger, and a cup of water. First of all, Jesus takes a little child in his arms, draws him close, and he says this. He says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You realize in the the Greco-Roman world, children were non-entities. They had no legal rights. They could be discarded, they could be left to die. Even if they were left to die, somebody was free to pick up the child, and the only reason they would pick up the child more times than not was just to raise that child so they could use that child as a slave when he got old enough. That's the the Greco-Roman idea of children. Now the Jews, the disciples that that Jesus is talking to here, they had a better understanding or a a, a better view of children. You go back and you read some of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, children were a gift of God. But evidently, even with the disciples, the world's understanding of children had impacted them. The culture had had jaded them to the importance of children. Now, we don't necessarily have the same view of children that that the the Greco-Roman folks did or or, or even the Jews. Um, It's probably a lot different. But in Jesus' day, to accept a child... Now listen to this. In Jesus' day, if you were to accept a child, you were accepting something or someone who was considered weak, ignorant, and unwise. You were identifying yourself with somebody weak when you accepted a child. Keep that in the back of your mind because now he moves on to a stranger. We meet a stranger who is casting out demons, and he's casting out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. The disciples don't know who he is. And they didn't know what to think about this guy doing something that they had just failed to do. 
you go back and you read chapter 9, they just failed to do the same thing. He was an unknown entity who heals in the name of Christ. He wasn't part of the group. He was an outsider. He seemingly didn't belong. He didn't fit the mold. He didn't fit their expectations. In other words, you know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, receive the one who's doing great things in an unexpected way. So so first, Jesus tells the disciples, you you need to identify with this, with, with what the world considers to be weak. Accept the weak one. Not only that, accept this one who's doing certain things in the name of Christ, even though it's not the way you thought it would work. And then lastly... Even a small, seemingly insignificant cup of water matters to God. For even some water given to one who belongs to Jesus Christ will be rewarded. So you want to know what's going on here? Jesus is saying to his disciples, after he's just talked to them about his his dying on the cross for their well-being... Even after he's heard that they, or he understood that they were arguing over what it means to be great, so so he tells them, if you want to be great, you need to be last of all, and you need to be servant of all. And then he gives them these three pictures. What he's doing is, he's telling his disciples, the heart attitude that you have in accepting a child that according to the world standards is weak and not that smart and seemingly insignificant, the heart attitude that you have towards that, the heart attitude that you have in welcoming someone who's doing certain things in a way that's not, not according to your expectations, or even the heart attitude or the way in which you consider something that seems to be inconsequential, a cup of water, this is what what determines or provides the foundation of what it is you're going to decide is great. Because, see, the world's idea of greatness is what? The world's idea of greatness is the strong and the smart people. The world's idea of greatness is that great leader among a leader group and the one who knows all the right people. The world says, the little things don't matter, it's the big things. And you have to understand, you can't miss the point here, okay? The the point is not, this is not about how you love the children, as important as that is. This is not about how you love the outsider, as important as that is. This is not about doing things like giving cups of water, as important as that is. What Jesus is trying to explain to the disciples is, you have to look at life totally upside down from the rest of the world. Jesus is saying, if you're going to be a part of God's kingdom... If you're going to be great, you have to turn things upside down because the world isn't looking for the weak. The Lord, uh, the, the, the Lord isn't looking and greatness isn't all about the powerful and the people that are in. Greatness is about something that you don't quite understand yet. This is about how are we, how are they understanding the first thing that Jesus says, and that's all about his going to the cross to die on their behalf. Do do you see that? I'm not sure if I'm making myself clear here, but Jesus is the weak one. How do you look at him? 
Jesus is the one that is seemingly on the outside. If there, if there is a stranger with a capital S, it's him. And the death of Christ as the world looks at it, is totally insignificant. Jesus is telling us, telling his disciples, you guys are arguing about greatness and you don't have a clue as to what it means because greatness has to be received and it all comes from a particular way that you look at what Jesus Christ has come to do. It all flows out of the sacrifice of Christ for His people. It's received into the center of our lives and it changes everything. It turns everything upside down. It's ultimately about seeing Jesus Christ becoming last and servant of all so that we could be lifted up and be made great. It's all about dying to self. The ability to put yourself last into the service to the good of other people all because this is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and you are not able to do it if you don't understand what Christ has done. If you understand what Christ has done, then you have been made great. You've been received the greatness that only comes from Him. And then you don't have to be great according to the world's standards of greatness. Which really leads to our our second point. If you have been made great by the work of the one who has become last and servant of all, then there are certain things that you are going to do. There is a power that flows from seeing what God has done to make us great. When you understand that the kingdom life begins with receiving the one who is considered weak according to the world's standards. When you understand that kingdom life is, is, is come through an outsider, come, come in a way that you did not expect it. When you understand something as unexpected as his death on a cross, when that becomes real to you, then you are empowered to live as Christ lived because you are united to Him in His death and you are united to Him in His resurrection, which makes the rest of, or the middle portion of this passage, it makes sense. Because what Jesus says now is, is pretty radical. And you really can't sugarcoat it. That's the way He says it, the way He says it. Jesus says, if your hand, if you have been made great, Right? If you have received greatness, then you don't look at life the way the rest of the world does. In fact, what you will do is if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If, if it's your foot, then cut it off. If it's your eye, then tear it out. And let's be real clear. Jesus is not demanding that we, we excise our, our body parts. But He is expecting radical spiritual surgery. And the reason that he expects that is because nothing less than life and what it means to be great is at stake. And you know what he's saying here in this passage? He he is demanding, and this is hard, he is demanding that anything that hinders your walk or your union with him, that it needs to be removed. And it means that you will be committed to greatness as God defines it. So let's talk about what it means to to cut off our hand or cut off our foot or tear out our eye. 
Let's get concrete, practical. Say, say you are not married here this morning and you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. If that boyfriend or that girlfriend is not moving you closer to Jesus Christ, you know what Jesus says? Cut it off. End it. By the way, we get illustrations from, from, from things that we have to deal with. So you know what the next comment is after we say cut it off? But I'll be so lonely. And the answer is, you're probably right. But if you don't cut it off, you know what? It means that you don't understand the greatness that you have been given from Christ Jesus and you don't understand what He's done for you. Let's get something something a little more practical. I brought this up here so I could show it to you. Remember we're talking about if anything hinders your walk with Christ, cut it off, right? You see that? That's my my smartphone. Most of you have them, right? Most of you. If you have a cell phone or a smartphone or an iPhone or, or whatever they're called, and it's distracting you from what Christ is saying to us here, then you need to get rid of it. Right? If you, so was, if you're a man and you're looking at pictures that you don't need to be looking at and you know exactly what I'm talking about, you need to get rid of your phone. Or if you're just a, a, a man or a woman or a young person out there who spends so much time on his phone or her phone that you're not talking to people or you're not thinking about what the Lord has done for you or you're not able to to be last and servant of all. If you have a phone and it's distracting you, then Jesus says, cut it off. And he's not talking about turning it off. He's saying, get rid of it. That goes for children in families who when you sit down and you eat a meal and your mom and dad try to talk to you and you're so busy texting your friends that you don't even have supper together anymore. And we're right when we say, oh, that's really hard. Because it is really hard. But it's nothing near as hard as the God of the universe allowing Himself to be spit on, to be scoffed at, to die an excruciating death for sinners like you and me. Because if you understood the greatness that you have been given in Jesus Christ, and this little thing starts pulling you away from Jesus Christ, you're going to want to get rid of it. There are requirements for kingdom living. You know, I have to, I wasn't planning on, on, on saying this, but I mean, Social media is such a big deal, and I, and I like social media. I, I have, I don't know, I, I, bet I, I bet I have more Facebook friends than you guys would think. Right? But I do have friends that if I were to look at their, their media posts, their pictures, I would think all that they do in their life is drink alcohol. And don't get me wrong, there's no, we're Presbyterians. You can have a sip. You can drink. But, but if, if, if I'm looking at your social media and 90% of your pictures are all about a beer or a drink or the time down at the bar, 
What, what kind of message is that sending to all our friends? And I'm, I'm not saying that you ought to post pictures of your, your friends and your family. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But you ought to be figuring out why you're doing that. You, you ought to consider what it is that's motivating you to do what you do because, but, because God says you are responsible for the message that you send to other people in the world that don't understand what it is that's made you great. I, I could go on and on. The, the point is this. When I read that passage, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Whatever it was, the first thing that came to your mind, whatever that is that you know that is distracting you from being great according to God's understanding of greatness, whatever it is, God is saying, you need to get rid of it. And if you understand what God has done to make you great, you will want to get rid of it. And you will take steps today. If you understand what Jesus Christ has done for you in going to the cross and you've received that greatness that He has provided through His death and resurrection, then God the Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit has provided everything that you need. Greatness has been provided and if you've received it, then you'll want to do whatever you can to live in light of that. And that is a fact. Anything moves you away from understanding and living in light of the death of Jesus Christ, then, then, then get rid of it. Because life matters. Which leads to the last point. The result of this kind of greatness that God has provided for us. It, it's why you should want this, Okay? You realize in this passage that Jesus is really defining for us two ways of life. You will either be trying to be great according to the world's standard of greatness, or you will seek greatness in and through the cross of Christ. And you can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. And let me pull it out for you. Verse 40, the one who is not against us is for us. You're either for Jesus or against Jesus. You're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. You've either been made great or you're working to be great. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who belong to me to sin, it would be better for him if he were dead. You're either going to live or you're going to die. Verse 47 and following, just let, let me read all this because this ties everything together. It is better for you, says Jesus, to enter into the kingdom of God than to be thrown into hell. The, the, the Greek word literally is Gehenna, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God than to be thrown into Gehenna, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. And salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the way I want you to say that last part. This is the way I want you to think about that. Greatness is good. But if greatness is confused with the world's idea of greatness, then you really don't understand what it means to be great. Because greatness is received, and once received, then you can live at peace with one another. 
So this whole passage is you are either for Jesus, in Jesus, or you are against Jesus, outside of Jesus. You will either attempt to be great according to the world's standards, or you can be great in God's kingdom, and it's one or the other. And I do need you to understand here, Jesus is being really, really patient with his disciples here. I mean, he's just talked about his, his dying on the cross. They argue about who is great, and he simply sits down and teaches them. He is being very, very gracious and very, very patient with his people. But there does come a time when you understand, and when you understand what God has done, you have to do something, and you will want to do something because it will impact who you are for the rest of your life. Do you realize that the things that you are doing and the decisions that you are making and the people that you're hanging around with now and the people that are influencing you most, it will impact you for the rest of your life. The contrasting picture is this. There's kingdom living. It's abundant life of peace contrasted with a living hell. Literally Gehenna. Realize Gehenna was the valley south of Jerusalem that in Old Testament times was used for the sacrifice of children to to, to the God of Molech. And, And over history, what happened with that valley is that it came to be used as the place where human excrement and garbage was taken out of the city and burned. That's why the fire of Gehenna never goes out and the worms never die. Isaiah, when he talked about the valley of Gehenna, he said, there is no peace for the wicked. In other words, there is no peace for those who are seeking greatness according to the world's standards because we're always fighting other people for something better or something higher. And the picture is a stench of smoke rising from the ashes of our attempts to be great all at the expense of other people. Do you see that? That's one of the pictures. And it's contrasted with verse 49 that says you can be salted with fire. And it's, it's a very difficult section of this passage, but it's an allusion to Leviticus 2, and it's specifically talking about the Old Testament grain offering where the worshiper of God would salt the grain offering to signify this unbreakable bond between the worshiper and God himself. It was a symbol of permanence. It was a symbol of special status. It was a symbol of greatness and being made great. And it is a pleasing aroma to God. Do you see the two pictures? The two pictures of how we're all trying to go about being great. You can either receive greatness from God through the cross of Jesus Christ, something that's considered weak, something that's, that's not the way you expected it, something that doesn't matter to the world, and you can receive that greatness, and you can work for that greatness according to God's ways, and you can be a pleasing aroma to God Himself. Or you can work according to to the world's understanding of greatness and you can chew up and you can spit up anybody that gets in your way and you're like that pit where the fire doesn't go out and the worms never die. Paul says in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, in view of... His work for you in Jesus Christ on the cross. 
In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies up as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to Him. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. In other words, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world's idea of greatness, but rather... But rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because when you're transformed by, by receiving the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. This whole passage is governed by what God did for us to be great. And He became last and servant of all so that we could live. And by faith, we are united to Him. And as we are united to Him, we too can be last and servant of all and, and show people what an aroma to God that is pleasing to Him in all of our lives. Let me sum it up like this. Greatness is only to be received. You can't achieve it on your own efforts. Greatness comes only in our identification with the only truly great one. You see, the world looks at Jesus Christ as weak and not all that wise or important. The world looks at our Savior and says, He's not part of the in crowd. The world looks at our Savior on the cross and it doesn't seem to be all that meaningful. But we see Jesus Christ and accept His weakness as our strength. We see Christ's death on a cross not as a failure, but as our victory. Brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus, when that hits home, we will then be ready and willing to throw off anything that hinders. We will offer up all of ourselves as a living sacrifice, and we will experience greatness as God would have us. And, and, and I do have to say before I close, greatness sometimes does feel like dying. But whatever it looks like and whatever it feels like, God promises that in the end it will be good, it will be pleasing, and it will be perfect. You want to be great? Look to Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We all confess that um, we battle with this idea of being great. We struggle that it's not always easy to be last and servant of all. It's not always easy to, to let go of these things that we know hinder us from knowing You better. But You do promise that by Your Spirit, through Your patience and Your long-suffering with us, that You will enable us to do what You've called us to do to not only experience your kingdom in our hearts, but to live it out in a world that is, that is needy for kingdom life. Help us, even as we come and prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper, the table. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.